Hello, my fanist friends. Welcome to my podcast feed. Powered by ACAS Plus, here's a joke from my son. What did the bum say to the other bum? That's a bummer. You know, not for everyone. Uh, so, uh, look, thanks to everyone who's come to see the previews of Can I Have My Ball Back. It's been going really, really well, and uh, I'm really pleased with how the show's turning out. It's officially on tour now from Wednesday. I'll be at the Leicester Square Theatre. A couple of tickets left. Lots of press coming to that one. It'd be lovely to sell out, but there are a few other London gigs not selling as well. So if you're going to come to London... Maybe look up those other London gigs. And then this week I'll be in St Albans on Thursday, Gloucester on Friday, Chorley on Saturday, which is sold out. You can join the waiting list. And Glasgow on Sunday, two shows. I think the earlier show is sold out. Check with the venue, but the later show has some availability. Come along if you can. If you enjoy these podcasts and like them being free, then the great way to pay me back is to buy a ticket to a show or buy a download or a book from gofasterstripe.com. But you can just keep listening for free as well. That pays me back also. So, you know, no no pressure. But I'd love to see you there. If you just know me from the podcast and don't know me as a stand-up, I'm pretty good as a stand-up. It's a good show. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's only made about seven men faint so far. So, you know, are you brave enough to take the challenge? Let's sit back, relax and enjoy whichever podcast you're listening to now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Leicester Square Theatre. Please welcome a man who in this universe has decided to come on stage. It's Richard Herring. Thank you very much, my finest friends. Oh, my goodness, I'm caught up. Oh, it's all right. Thank you. Hello, welcome. Thank you for coming along, everyone. You're much better than last week's audience. Uh, welcome. Welcome to Richard Herring's Leicester Square Theatre Podcast. I was talking to Tony the Tiger from off of the Frosties advert the other day. He calls it... I don't know if that's going to catch on. Just trying to see if I've got any more stand-up for you. Like, it's, been, it's been actually like three weeks since I've done one of these. And so you'd think a lot of things have happened to me in between uh, that I could be hilarious about. Nothing, absolutely nothing has happened to me. Uh, my daughter, Phoebe, uh, nearly eight years old, seven years old, uh, has just discovered uh, the Uranus joke. Uh, she loves 
and she's going at it like Stuart Lee. I have to tell you, it's absolutely fantastic. What a wonderful moment uh, to realise. But apart from that, uh, not so much. So I'm going to talk to the audience. have got a young man in the front row. What's your name, sir? Rashid. Do I know you, Rashid? Do you ever email me? There's a, no, there's a... Okay. Fine, that's all right. I've got just there's a Rashid who emails me sometimes. So I thought, what, what do you do for a living, Rash? Can I call you Rash? Okay. Can I call you... What do you do? You're a security officer. What does that mean? What does that involve? You're on a reception. You sit on a reception. Okay, that's not a... Re- that's, not, that's, that's a secretary. That's not a... <laughs> It's not a security officer. That's the, recep- that's the receptionist. That's what that's called. Have you, what's the biggest emergency you've averted uh, so far in your job? Have you done anything? No. That's the sign of a good security, eh? That's right. That there's never any danger. With- Have you got the cushiest job in the world, would you say? Has it worked out? Good. That's good to see. Uh, what's your name, sir? Raz. Uh, what, did you work together? Your friends? Yeah, don't work together. What do you do? Have you got a proper job? I work in insurance. You work in insurance. Have you ever paid out on anything? <laughs> <laughs> you don't do I don't know do any of that. Don't do the paying out, just take the money. That's good. Uh, anyway, you're very welcome. Thank you for coming to the Leicester Square Theatre to see the show. Look, let's crack on. We've got an absolute legendary... Let's not mess around talking to... The audience, we've got naps. Don't let's not mess around saying we're messing around. Let's just get on with it. We've got an absolute legendary guest for you today. He is best known for playing street punk uncredited in Police Academy 2. <laughs> Will you please welcome? Let's find out if that's true. The incredible Rich Hall, ladies and gentlemen. Street punk. Street punk. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Come in, sit down, pull up, pull up a microphone. How are you doing? Good evening. Thank you. <laughs> great. Great. Yeah. Street punk. Street that... punk. What, how, that was early in your career? Police Academy 2? Um, I'm going to be honest. I don't remember. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm in that film. No. I, I actually don't remember doing that. No. I don't think it's... It's, it's on your IMDb page. I know, but there's a few things on there that, yeah. that, are, that are attributed to me that I'm pretty sure I wasn't in. Okay. Uh, I was in Chud 2... That was about a half a day. Uh, You know, sometimes I'm sure people go, hey, will you do me a favor? Come down and just do this part. Yeah, okay, fine. (laughs) And then later it comes out and you go, oh, my God, really? Wow, (laughs) Chud 2. You you can't even defend that. Like, uh, you know, people go, you weren't even in Chud (laughs) 1, which is cannibal humanoid underground dwellers. Okay. and what did you play? What were, you, what were you in Chud 2? I guess I was a street punk. I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's what's attributed to me. I don't... I honestly do not remember okay. doing that. I've... Uh, if, if you put me in a movie, uh, it's, it's, it's going to die. There's no question. <laughs> I've, I don't think I've ever been in a... My voice has been in some good movies. Okay. Uh, but my face... My face is box office poison. <laughs> I don't know why people even go, Rich, you want to be in this film? And I go, yeah, yeah, okay, I'll be in a film. And then, uh, and then I almost always regret it. Okay. And most of them were because somebody, um, somebody owed somebody a favor. Yeah. That's, that's pretty much my film career. 
Well, in your fantastic new book, I have to say, uh, it's called uh, Nailing It. It's, it's, I think, my, one of my favourite, if not my favourite, uh, books about being a stand-up, but also about other things as well. Uh, you do write about being in the remake of A Mad, yes. Mad, 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 Mad World. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which... Uh, you might have gone one mad over... I think I, I put yeah. too many mads in. I think it was four mads. Okay. Yeah. Uh, when you come off... I was on Saturday Night Live for a year... Um, and when you come out of Saturday Night Live, you immediately go into a shit film. Like, that's just <laughs> de rigueur. That you have to be in a bad film. Uh, it's Pat or, uh, you know, uh, even to me, Animal, I never thought Animal House was a very good film. People swear by it. But, yeah. but um, when you come out, and, and I came out and uh, Dino De La, Do you want me to tell the story? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Dino, Dino De Laurentiis, who at that time was about 106. Uh, <laughs> brings me up to his like office in in Century City Los Angeles and says and he, he literally like he's just this bony fingered guy but he's but I'm looking at the guy and go oh my god this guy produced Serpico you know and then by the end of the conversation I thought oh yeah this guy produced Amityville Horror 2 <laughs> you know? and uh uh, he said, "I'm going to make, I'm going to remake uh, Mad, 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 Mad World, which is a fantastic film, yeah. and was very much improvised, but just a stellar cast of comedians, you know, and um, Phil Silvers and Jonathan Winters, and, and he said, I'm going to remake it, but uh, in my version, uh, the the cast loses four million dollars, but uh, they lose one million in a in a trash bag, and there will be clues in the film." that people can come back to see again and again and again, and um, they can figure out where this money is hidden. And uh, so I, I, my, my, I had an agent, and she said, oh, that's great. And I was just thinking, this is the shittiest idea. This is just stupid. And I said, why would you do that? And he walked over to the window, and he said, all right, imagine there's a cineplex down there, uh, a twinplex, and uh, this side, this this." This theater is showing um, Blue Velvet, which is a film that involves multiple rape scenes and a severed ear and uh, uh, a guy huffing a gas mask throughout it. Uh, This film is showing uh, uh, people losing a million dollars, and you can earn a million dollars by watching the film. Which film are people going to go see? And I just thought, I fucking love David Lynch. Uh, <laughs> like people are clearly gonna choose the severed ear and the rape over a bunch of idiots <laughs> running around looking for money in a bag, and um, and then I just made a horrible decision and uh, based almost purely on the amount of money they would offer me. <laughs> but they also did the thing that did you say to a comedian? They said, "Hey, you can improvise." And when you're a comedian, you go, "Oh, really?" I'm in, because your ego just starts going, oh, I can, I can make this great. And uh, within two days of shooting, we realize, no, this is the turkey. This is going to, this is, we're turkey stuffing. That's what we are. <laughs> we are absolute turkey stuffing. And um, we tried to derail the movie. We tried to derail the, the, the money campaign yeah. by uh, trying to, we figured out where the money was hidden like through clues in the film. My friend Rick Overton, who's a comedian, I don't know if you've ever met him or not. He's I don't know how met him. Brilliant improviser, yeah. but just out of his mind. <laughs> and we realized that the, the money was actually hidden on a Navajo, in, the, on, in the Navajo reservation in a place called Shiprock, New Mexico. And, and, and Rick was out of his mind. He said, let's, let's go over there and we'll find something. There'll be coordinates. There'll be, uh, there'll be, there'll be something that... Because that, the money is just, of course... 
figuratively hidden. Not yes. they didn't actually hide a million bucks in a trash bag. But uh but uh I, I just got caught up in it and plus I wanted to trash the movie so bad. I, I even tried to write myself out of the film yeah. by saying, oh, uh, what about if I fall off a cliff? <laughs> and I get stuck on an, ice, on an icicle, and then the weather changes, and it melts, and I die. And the, and the, <laughs> the, the, the director went, oh, you die? Went, yeah, yeah, I die. I'm, I'm out of this in, like, three minutes into the film. And they went, no, you're not getting out of it that easy. <laughs> no way. So we had to stick around, and it was an awful, awful film. Yeah. Uh, we uh, we ended up on this Navajo reservation, and uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs called us in, and I um, I threw a I left a script on the Shiprock Mountain. Yeah, I left Rick's script. I stuck it under the car, so the in, so the Navajo would find it, and hopefully, you know, and they did. They found the script, and they called us into the BIA office, and the and the the chief literally said, "Call me chief." He was, <laughs> he was Navajo, and I went, "Yeah, I'll call you chief." And uh, he said, what's, what's go- what is this? And I, it looks like a bunch of idiots running around looking for money. And I went, yeah, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> and uh, he said, so uh, it's hidden on that mountain? I said, no, not, not really. It's just uh, figuratively hidden on the mountain. And he went, all right, you know, I've already got like three, three, 30, 40 people out there crawling around. They're going to break their necks thinking this money is really hidden out there. And uh, so you need to go back and tell the people – I don't know who it is. I said, it's Dino De Laurentiis. And he went, I, I don't give a shit who it is. I don't know, I don't know who that is. And I went, you, you tell them they even mentioned Shiprock or, or, any, or anything about the Navajo. We, we will be on them so fast. And uh, so we had to go back. And, uh, and then they kind of figured out that we'd run off the set. Yeah. And so they, they changed the whole script. They right. rewrote what would, there was of a script. And, they, and we moved to Lake Havasu. Uh, Arizona. They changed the film. We had to shoot over Christmas. We we didn't get any overtime pay, and it ended up that the money was hidden in the Statue of Liberty's nose. <laughs> and uh, so that's a million bucks. And and uh, about forty people figured that out. Right. They gave it to this girl from Bakersfield. They gave her a million bucks. Right. The film grossed four hundred sixty thousand. <laughs> <laughs> They sent us down to Hollywood Boulevard. They sent Rick over to no, uh, Rick over to night down to Hollywood Boulevard to stand on opening on the you know the opening day, stand outside the theater and talk to people about hey where do you think the money's hidden? And like three people came out, and two of them just went oh fuck, you know? <laughs> and, and the, the one guy walked saw us and walked up and went that film was so bad I want everybody's money back. <laughs> It was awful. Yeah. I, I hope you can't find Don't go looking for it. <laughs> I really want to look I know, for it. I know. <laughs> oh, God. And I might do. If I find it, I'll tell you where it is on YouTube. Um, the, this book is fabulous. And I didn't know so much about your, your earlier career, because obviously you came over to the UK in, sort of in the late, late 90s. 90s. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, you'd already were a, a very established force in, uh, as you say, you were in Saturday Night Live, which I think similarly to Janine Garofalo's book, you skip over. It's yeah. like to most people, being in Saturday Night Live would be the book. Would be the but like right. But it's it's not. I mean, you don't need to talk about it if you don't uh, want to talk about it because you don't want to talk about it in the book. But it's you were in Saturday Night Live for a, a season. But before that, you started out uh, as a street performer, really, but a, a very sort of avant garde and uh, risk taking yeah. street performer. Was yeah, to. I suppose. It, I guess it was risky. I don't. I, I had nothing better to do. I um, 
I quit I, for a very brief time. I worked as a journalist. That was I actually spent four years in university studying journalism, edited the student newspaper for a year and a half, got a job uh, in Knoxville, and uh, writing what they what they call slot notices. Uh, uh, the 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 lay the layman's term is obituaries. My job was to I didn't even know these. Uh, yeah, I was writing obituaries, and I didn't even have a desk. Like I borrowed somebody else's desk. My hours were from nine until two in the morning. Nine and like whenever the paper was done. All right, Rich, you come in and write up the obituaries. Of just it's just imagine how creepy that is, <laughs> even in the daytime. Yeah, but at night. So I'd get off at like you know two in the morning and just. All I've been doing is is basically archiving dead people, <laughs> and uh, I thought this is what I studied journalism for. This is, and I went into the editor and I said, "I how long do I have to do this?" And he went, uh, "You know, until people stop dying." <laughs> and I said, "I don't know how much longer I could do this." And he said, "Well, you don't have to. We've got a we've got a robot. We've, we've got a computer <laughs> program that's going to start writing the obituaries pretty soon." <laughs> really. <laughs> Like, at least I'm, like, investing some kind of emotion into these dead yeah. people. You're going to have a computer just chronicling dead people? Like, yeah, we got the computer coming in. And that never happened, so I quit. <laughs> yeah, I quit and became a street performer. Yeah. An evangelist. I became a, a dog evangelist. I baptized dogs. I mean, but, like... No. What, that needs more explanation? <laughs> I baptized dogs. It's a starting point in comedy. It's, you know, it's pretty out there. I mean, it, it, admirably so, but it's not even, you know, it's just in... It's almost like sort of a prank show or something. You're just going out into the world and, and starting something up in the street, right? Didn't in it? a way, yeah. It was actually a huge inside collegiate joke. There's a guy named Jed Smock who weirdly only died about a, a month ago. I actually read his obituary, and he was still doing it up to this point. Written he by go- a computer or by a person? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he just... Uh, he would. Uh, he was an, a, a campus evangelist, and he was right. astounding. And in terms of dealing with hecklers, like this is before I knew anything about comedy. This guy Jeb Smock would come around to campuses in the U.S. and he'd stand out there with a loud hailer, and he'd just go, "I don't know why all these there's whorehouses in this town when you sophomore women are giving it away for free." <laughs> and of course, the crowd would just start going, "Who the?" <laughs> Who's this guy? And he would antagonize him so much. My favorite was he. Listen to this logic, and it, he would go, uh, "Son, do you masturbate?" And somebody would always go, "Every chance I get, right?" And then he go, "So you are touching yourself. Thus, you are touching a man. What does that make you? A homosexual." <laughs> the Bible is very clear about what happens to homosexuals. They end up in a lake of fire. And people are just people can't even follow the logic. What if I what I'm um, and he would he would literally like there'd be 10 or 15 people at the end of these performances in the middle of the campus who would just come up and get saved, get baptized and everything. And then he'd move on to the next campus and um, he'd come and everybody knew who he was, everybody. So I, I saw him and I just thought, what if like I had no understanding of comedy? I, I didn't even think of it as comedy. I just thought, what if I could get a crowd together? And get him that antagonized, and then 15 minutes in, just go, God, you know, he's everywhere, he's everywhere, he's in this album, God's Greatest Hits, and, uh, <laughs> and turn it into a comedy routine, because I knew the audience would be so worked up, they hated this guy so much, yeah, yeah. that they would just be relieved, and that's what it was, it's, it's, it was street performing, but it was really just a huge practical joke, 
that then I had to follow up with a lot of funny stuff. Yeah. I started having to, to write. But at that point, it was like, well, this is what I'm doing now. I'm street performing <laughs> and pass a bucket around. And I get a, like a lot of change and hits of acid and joints. That's what I got every, <laughs> every show. There'd be acid and joints right. in the bucket with the, with the uh, yeah. change. And I take it to the bank and they put it in the hopper. And then they come back and go, yeah, here's, here's your $83. And I don't know what this is, but it's yours now. You didn't see us. And so that was my, yeah, that was my start. It's, it's, it's so unusual and such an individual start. But it, and, and it's such a brave, I mean, I suppose you didn't know. If you didn't know what comedy was and you didn't know if no. you just were doing something, it was, it was just so um, individual to start. I didn't really... To, to me, it was either going to die. Like, the, the idea, the, the fear when you're a comedian and, and going into, like, an open mic or something is this very palpable fear of, like, oh, they're going to hate me, I'm going to die. But this was, like, not only did was there no audience to begin with, I had to build the audience by just yelling through a loud hailer. Yeah. But I also hit right away on this idea that, wait, if I baptize dogs, I know there's a payoff at the end. And it was literally this. I had a picture, not much, not much different than this, and I had some, a picture of dogs playing poker, which is basically the dog version of The Last Supper. Yeah. And <laughs> if you think about it, the Doberman pincher is Jesus, and the, the, the bulldog passing the ace to the other dog is Judas, right? And, uh, and so I just did the whole sort of Last Supper thing with the dogs playing poker. And then I'd, uh, I'd just call for a dog. And there'd always be a dog. Sooner or later, a dog would show up. And then I'd baptize him. I'd just say, do you reject, you know, uh, do you believe in the, you know, the, the, the final uh, fire hydrant? And uh, <laughs> sort of this weird litany. And they'd bring the dog up and they'd hold the dog there. And then I'd just go, I baptize you in the name of, you know, Jesus. And reject all. And I'd pour the water over the dog. Yeah. And reject Satan. <laughs> and... Every dog, of course, just shakes like crazy. <laughs> so I knew all I knew was I had the closing punchline. Yeah. I knew that was going to work, <laughs> and it always worked. It looked it looked fantastic. I could if you brought a dog out now, I could make it. I could still do it, and it would look great. Anyone brought a the dog? dog <laughs> and people would just go nuts. Yeah, and uh, and then I just get in the truck, travel to the next college, and and you know sometimes you know I'd hit like Houston Baptist College, and it would all go. It would just be awful. Right. Like, uh, they didn't but but then i just ah well that didn't work so i died like i died i knew i was gonna die before i'd even opened my mouth at some places but yeah. it didn't matter i'd already set up all this crap all these props and everything <laughs> well i'm gonna do this anyway yeah. so the whole like mass rejection but on other other places it was like it would they, they loved it yeah you know and I, I was making a lot of money i was making a lot of money <laughs> you get to the bigger universities, and I'd have two or three hundred people in the crowd. Guy came up to me in the University of Maryland, said, uh, "My name is John Shear. Uh, I'm a music producer. Uh, I produce tours. Do you want to open for the Talking Heads tomorrow night?" And I went, "Yeah, right." <laughs> he went, "No, I'm I'm John Shear. Here's my card." And he just gave me a card. I went, and he went uh, "Do you want to open for the Talking Heads? Give me a call later in my office." And I I was asking around. They went, "Well, yeah, the Talking Heads are here tomorrow night." I went, "Holy fuck!" And I ended up opening. One day I was street performing, and the next yeah. night I was opening for the Talking Heads. <laughs> That's insane. Yeah, yeah. And so how did that then translate into 
you going into clubs and you must you change your act right when you you do you do that I, I was changing my act look all the time. it's just long days of driving down through the prairies and the, the midlands and, and I had all day to think of new stuff. Yeah. And tons of props. I was a gigantic prop comedian and uh I, I didn't really have any it was it was so like wide open to what I could do that yeah. I, it didn't it never occurred to me that there'd be that I have to struggle for ideas, you know. No. Granted, it was college kids. It was eighteen to twenty-two, and they have a certain sense of humor. It could be very, you know, it could be very physical. And uh, I ate dog biscuits, you know. <laughs> I, I'd share them and then collapse into spasms. And go, ah, <laughs> oh, maybe I got a bad one. That was another. <laughs> maybe I got a bad one. And uh, it was really funny back then. And. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and that just sort of evolved into this big kind of... I was a huge... I just had props. Yeah. And then I started playing other characters. And so by the time I got indoors, I, I didn't even... I wasn't... I didn't, didn't even know how to use a mic. I was just used to yelling through a loud hailer. Yeah. And uh, so uh, it was at that point to be able to walk into a comedy club in New York... And just see an audience already there was like, really? Wow, I didn't have to go out on the street and gather these people together. This is great. Yeah, yeah. So but it was a pretty good on. It was actually a, a good entree into into stand up comedy. And then presumably you're coming into clubs and doing something that's pretty different than the most of the, or was because in the UK in the eighties stand up was quite crazy and people, yeah. people did a lot of you know borderline mentally ill stuff, but yeah. very very performance art stuff. So was there other people doing things like you, or were you? Were you sort of standing out as this guy doing props and and characters? Penn and Teller were uh, they. I, I remember seeing them as street performers even before I became a street performer. Right. There was a third member. They were street performers. Uh, there was a magician named Harry Anderson who did a show called Night Court, who was yeah. very popular. I don't know. Not I don't know if he's well known over here, but there quite a, a number of people who started out as street. Performers. Robin Williams started out as a street performer. Right. So, yeah. Um, you become, you just, I don't recommend it for, I think there's a better way to go, which is to just come up through the clubs because yeah. you learn how to be subtle and you don't realize you don't have to yell and be so big. <laughs> I had to tone it down when I came inside because I was like, I was just so, then the Lord said to the Chihuahua, you know. Uh, so I, I, you tone it down inside. That's, that's the first thing I learned. Yeah. What I was quite, what I and I found this when I started out, and I guess when anyone's starting out, what I quite like from the book is, you know, you're talking about um, other other acts, the the sort of the the guys that are sort of either, you know, to the other side of mentally ill, either they actually yeah. are, you know, the, the comedians are obviously treading that line, and sometimes they're a bit crazy, and sometimes they're pretending to be a bit crazy, and sometimes, yeah. that. but you get a lot of people in comedy who just are the kind of lost waifs and strays who maybe are a bit crazy. And you talk about one guy in the book who... Right. Yeah. I, I, there, there's tons of them. There's tons of them in America. But I yeah. um, sort of, again, uh, I, I used to work this diner in New Jersey called the TikTok, and there was a guy... <laughs> this guy came on every week. It was, a, it was the gong show. It was a gong show. This guy came on every week uh, dressed as General George A. Custer, and he would sing Quando, Quando, Quando <laughs> by Engelbert Humperdinck. Every, that's all he did. Had a backing track. Tell me when will... And there was a gong, right? And this is New Jersey. 
they they were passing money. It was like it was it was like Thai boxing, you know, <laughs> or, or that, that, that. <laughs> like people were taking bets on how many quandos this guy would get through before bang, <laughs> like serious money too, yeah. like hundred dollar bills floating around going. He's going to get through six quandos. No, he'll get through five. Hey, <laughs> and people they they loved, they hated him, but. They they came and they bet on how many quandos he could get through. Yeah. And uh, he was he was a Vietnam vet, and uh, I, I inadvertently I, I won't go into the whole story, but there is I think that's the first no that's like the second or third chapter in the book. Yeah. Uh, that kind of like turned into uh, my kind of first television break. Yeah. Was I sort of borrowed this guy's? I actually found his jacket. He wrecked his car, and I. He, uh, I helped him, in, you know, get into the ambulance or anything, and kept his uh, army jacket, his field jacket for Vietnam, and then uh, ended up sort of in channeling him during an audition for a TV show. Yeah. I just kind of became this guy, and uh, ended up. That's how I ended up working on the Letterman show. Yeah. So that, yeah. I mean, that, so you had this break and, and working on. Dave Letterman did a daytime show before. He his, did. Yeah, it was very short lived. It was about eight months. Yeah, it was live. It was live. My first TV gig was live yeah so so how long was that like all was it like so was it hours long or was it just no it was 90 minutes 90 yeah it was yeah. a long show it was a long t- was it daily or, or it was morning it was yeah. every five days a week morning show they replaced like three game shows and you know in america you get rid of somebody's favorite game show and they are fucking angry <laughs> you know and and letterman was like this was like uh, this guy, Fred Silverman, who ran NBC, he just said, we're going to get rid of three game shows and we're going to put in this gap-toothed guy from Indiana. <laughs> and uh, and Letterman was great. I mean, he had, you know, well... But the morning show was like, we had no idea what we were doing. And we were just go, well, let's just throw watermelons off the roof of the building and film them. And we'd throw them 83 floors off Rockefeller Center and just film it exploding and show it in slow motion. That was, like, good for two minutes right there. <laughs> just an exploding watermelon. Or stupid pet tricks. We, we came up with that, and that carried on through his whole career. And yeah. So we had no idea what we were doing. We had 90 minutes every morning just to fill. And uh, so they ended up... I, they hired me as a writer, but then they just said, hey, you got to go on and do something because we're, we're, <laughs> we're out of guests, you know. And I was just, all right, fine. Nobody's watching anyway. We didn't think anybody was watching. Actually, a lot of people were watching. College kids just yeah. laying around getting high. But uh, but it was good. We won an Emmy. Even We won the Emmy after we'd been canceled. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even get to go. There was no even ceremony. They did no, you're not coming to the ceremony. <laughs> but they, they sent my Emmy to the post office in lower Manhattan, and I had to go down and pick it up. Yes. Postage due. I owed, like, three bucks. <laughs> To get my own fucking Emmy. I wasn't even the only one getting an Emmy there. There was another guy from the show as well. <laughs> we were both down there getting, hey, we're here for our Emmys. And we just we talked about doing this impromptu Emmy speech at the post office. Well, thank you so much. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's an extraordinary time for American comedy, though, as well. And you were working alongside uh, Seinfeld and Larry David yeah. and doing, doing gigs with all these people that went, yeah. went on to be. Um, we didn't know what we were doing. It, I, I think, I'm sure it's the, it was the equivalent here, maybe like eight or ten years later, you know, when it yeah. took off here. It took off in the uh, the, the late 70s and early 80s in America. Yeah. Uh, there were three clubs in New York, 
and that was it. There were three clubs in New York. There was a couple clubs in Los Angeles, and those those were your choices. So you either go to L.A. or New York, and I went to New York because there were three clubs in Manhattan, what? and you could end up doing 20-minute spots at all of them if you played your cards right. Yeah. And I walked into the comic strip in New York and, and saw Seinfeld even back then, and he was already like the – he was the stalwart. He was the guy that everybody else held, you know, that, that's who they looked up to. And he was great. I mean, he just had it, you know. He also worked at it like six, eight hours a day, you know. Yeah. So many comedians were just like, eh, eh, get high or whatever. He was – he had an incredible work ethic. Larry David, exact opposite. <laughs> just napped. I think he napped all day. And then they'd wake him up and he'd go do a show, and he was vicious. He was vicious. I remember saying, this guy's not cut out for comedy. <laughs> I remember saying that. Cause we would take bets on how long he'd last on stage. Yeah. Anything. Someone would sneeze, and he would just, that's it. And he'd, he, he invented the mic drop. He was doing that like <laughs> 35, 40 years ago. Just, I'm done. Fuck you. Good night. <laughs> what the hell? That guy's never going to make it. <laughs> and you were offered a part on Seinfeld, is that right? The, the, that you didn't do? Um, no, no, it wasn't a part. It was just an episode. Yeah. Right. I, 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 I think I was touring. I couldn't get out of. I right. couldn't do it. Okay. Yeah, I was just contractually couldn't do it. Yeah. And then, I don't know. I think maybe opportunity never came up again. So. Right. Yeah. That's yeah. a shame, isn't it? I suppose, yeah. But given, <laughs> given my track record in movies, who's to say it's any better in TV? You know? That would have been the Oh, God, who remembers the shittiest Seinfeld episode ever? <laughs> Rich Hall came in and ruined it. I'd imagine, though, like, if you're in one... I, mean, I get, like, a check for 4P every now and again from some radio show I did in 1990. I imagine yeah. if you're in Seinfeld, one episode, that's probably quite a nice little... Yeah, yeah, you would. Yeah, because that's probably playing somewhere in the world right now. Yeah. Seinfeld and MASH, those shows are still playing everywhere. And (laughs) Friends, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, the royalty system in America is is quite generous. That's true. Yeah. um, I I think it's kind of a shame here. I I know there's no no safety net for... uh, There's no... uh, Even in TV, are are there any... Yeah. It's, it's well, it's not. I mean, it's such big money, isn't it? In if you can get the syndicated series in, yeah. America, obviously, if you can get Seinfeld, that's ideal. <laughs> but, yeah. But anything that's hundred episodes and then it's playing everywhere and then it's... yeah, yeah, then yeah, then you're a millionaire. Yeah, yeah. If that's what you're in it for, I'm not in it for that. <laughs> I have no interest in being a millionaire. I've no. never. I honestly can tell you, I've never done anything for the money except Million Dollar Mystery. That's where I learned my lesson. Yeah. Never do it for the money. Forget the money, you know. Forget it. No, I think that's true. Yeah. But you know, it's also nice if they do pay you, though. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm only saying that now because no one's offered me a million pounds. <laughs> I probably would take a million pounds. To, right. At, at my age, at this point in my career, I'll fucking sell hemorrhoid products. For, <laughs> uh, I will. For a million bucks, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I will. Um, I think you've got it. Because to... the whole, you know, the whole... Con- Remember the idea of selling out? I was thinking about this the other day. Like, that was real Selling out as as a as a ethical, as an artistic, ethical idea. Yeah. I don't think it exists anymore. I was thinking about this the other day. It's like, I don't think anybody holds you... There's very few purists who do, oh, he sold out when he, you know... I think everybody now knows... Yeah, they offered him a lot of money, so he did it, yeah. you know? Bob Dylan is selling Ford trucks or whatever, you know? Of course he is. 
for the money. Yeah. Like no one holds it against him. But but there was a long period in my early career where it's like, no, nah, I'm not selling out, man. I am not selling out. Yeah. But I think that's true, and that's true of a lot. A lot of people, I think, in this country as well. It did. It sort of just. I think it sort of changed in the '90s, and then definitely as we got into this century, it sort of. I think the the new comics wouldn't bat an eye. You know, if they get an ad, they, they it's, yeah. And understandably, it's fair enough. I think it's sort of weird when it's for me. It's, it was always if it was like a big, big name who's already a millionaire, and then yeah. they're taking another ten million to do. So you kind of think, what, what, what do you do with all this money? But then I think That's that true. about all of these super rich people. You know, what's Elon Musk doing with his two hundred million, two hundred billion dollars? Yeah. What's Bob Dylan just sold his back catalog and and uh, I don't think he needs the money. No, I I think he's probably I I don't I think you got to do something with it if you if ha- you have all these publishing rights, Springsteen people like that are like what are you going to do with it? You might as well just sell it and use the money for something. Yeah, because eventually it's gonna it's gonna be public domain anyway. You mm-hmm. know, so. Sell what would you do catalog. if you had a back catalogue? If the Otis Lee Crenshaw back catalogue was sold for $70 million? Yeah. What would, what would you do with $70 I would, million? I would sell my back catalogue for £7,000. <laughs> if somebody wanted to take one of my songs and record them, and, and yeah, yeah, good for you. Yeah. Yeah, because uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of my favourite songwriters aren't making, they're, they're making a living because somebody else recorded their song. Yeah. And then somebody, oh, yeah, I love that song by so-and-so. And I get to go, no, that's not who wrote it. <laughs> and I get that moment of satisfaction. I'm going, I think you'll find that Take It Easy was written by Jackson Brown. <laughs> People go, who gives a shit? <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. But you did have, you know, you did have this early success, and you must have, you must have done. Again, people in the UK won't know about this. I didn't really know about this. You were in the, um, the American version of not in the nine o'clock news, basically. Yeah, uh, and and yet you did a, 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 a section called Sniglets, right? Uh, in which you gave definitions to words that don't. Yeah, you words that. Sh- yeah, words that should be, be in the dictionary but that never aren't. made it. Yeah. yeah. But you did. Know, there was a lot of books of this, so like you became yeah, the Sniglets like guy in America. Yeah, that's one of the main reasons I came over here. Was yeah. <laughs> it was a weird um, kind of 
success backfire kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, in that I'd, uh, I had these books that were um, uh, bestsellers on, on the New York Times bestseller list and everything. Uh, they, in the how-to uh, advice miscellaneous. Yeah. It wasn't fiction. It wasn't nonfiction. It was under how to advice miscellaneous. So, it was, <laughs> so I was always, uh, I was always just right behind the Rand McNally Road Atlas. It really <laughs> pissed me off too. I, I really started to hate the fucking Road Atlas. Like, <laughs> like I couldn't eclipse Rand McNally Road Atlas. Yeah, they and, they were they had it coming though, Rich. They, that 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 Road Atlas won't yeah, be selling yeah. anything now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, yeah. But then again, nobody's buying my books either. So. Uh, um. But it was a weird situation in that the, the they were popular, but they didn't work on the stage. Like right. I could do them right now, and I could probably do two that you would go, "Oh, that's that's kind of funny," but not really. It was <laughs> it was a textual thing, right? It was yeah. like these work as a book, but of course the club owners are going, "Hey, the guy who wrote Sniglets, he's he's playing this weekend," <laughs> and so people show up, and the club owners didn't care. You know, they were snakes. They were like. Yeah, let's just get the asses in the seats. And I'd walk out on stage, and I'd be like 10 minutes in, and then you'd start hearing it. They're good. They're good. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't really. They're not going to work, people. No, come on, do some sniglets. And it, it, it was really. And then I'd get angry. And yeah. I'm talking, Fuck you. I'm not doing the sniglets. And then the crowd would go, why is he so angry? We just want to hear his funny <laughs> words. Like I would, say, I would say, I can't. It's like Gary Larson coming out and trying to describe a far side cartoon, okay? It's just not going to be that effective. Yeah. And I'm literally on stage arguing my way out of a request, you know? <laughs> It'd be like a, like the Who go on and play, play my generation, and they go, let me explain why we don't want to do that song. And you just go, what? Fucking just play the song. We requested it. And I couldn't... You can't argue with an audience that something's not funny because that inherently is not funny. So there's no way to... I was trying to figure out, how can I turn this argument that I'm not going to do Sniglets and make it funny? And it just didn't work. It was no. just, now the crowd is going, but we they promised that you'd... And, oh, fuck. So um, I came over here to do Edinburgh. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have to... Nobody cared. Nobody knew about that. I was just a lodestone that I just managed to drop like that. And also... I was playing, I was on the American club circuit, and if you know anything about the American club circuit, which pretty much still exists, it's just, you go in on a Thursday night to Sir Laughs-A-Lot, you know, or <laughs> P.O. Pants, or some stupid, <laughs> stupid, horrible chain club, and all the tables are lined up like Oktoberfest, like nobody's even looking at you, they're all facing each other, and looking up like that at stage, and they're selling yeah. the jalapeno poppers, and fucking mixed drinks. There's always a blender going on. There's a two-drink minimum as you come in. Even if you don't drink alcohol, you have to order two drinks. Like, the audience has been raped before they ever sit down, right? <laughs> They've just been treated like shit. And then uh, the, the the local guy comes out, and he's like has all the local references because he's a co Detroit comic, you know? Yeah. So he does that, and then, then they bring in a middle guy who's the rest of the time... You have to, uh, he spends the week following you around watching you buy stuff at the mall, right? <laughs> and he does 20 minutes. And then you come out and you do 45 minutes. And, and, and about 35 minutes in, <laughs> the waitresses just come around and drop the checks on the table. 
and people have to pay up while you're on stage. Right, to, yeah. Imagine right now. <laughs> hey, pay up. Pay up, everybody. Waitresses were coming through right now asking you to get out your credit cards and money while we're trying to do a show. Yeah. So all the momentum you've built as in that first 35 minutes, now you have to have five minutes of just treading water material. And then, of course, now they're paid up, and they're like, fuck, who the fuck ordered three pina coladas? So now they're like, well, this better be worth it. And now they're looking back up at you like, you better have, you better make this worth our while because this is way more than we thought it was going to cost. Yeah. And you're, now you're under pressure to deliver this incredible closing bit. So you end up having to struggle to, well, what's my closing bit? You don't get to, you don't get to just ship things around. You really have to have a very structured show. That's, sure. And, um, you know, it was, it's a great way to make a living financially you could make a good living there's mm. tons of comedians in america who that's what they do they play the clubs and they're great comedians they're great club comics i got to edinburgh and it was all different it was just i'll buy a pint i'll buy a ticket i'm going to come in and sit down you make me laugh in this cave because <laughs> you know edinburgh was i i walked into places in edinburgh and went there, there can't possibly be a show here there can't possibly i was in these things these vaults these walls where you could just stick your hand in the wall and pull out <laughs> chunks of the fucking wall. And just, fuck, it's like a snowball. And, <laughs> and they were doing comedy in there. And I thought yeah. that was the greatest thing in the world. I just thought, so this whole town just, they just turn everything into a, and comedy was king. Even yeah. when, when I first got there, it was, you know, the, the fringe was just, it just blew my mind. Yeah. Just, so all I have to do is just go up on an hour and nobody, there's going to be no waitresses, no checks. <laughs> no, no, just please, God, make us laugh. Please make us laugh. And uh, I, th- I thought it was great. And you basically just put together a show, like, on the hoof, ready for that first? Yeah, is yeah, that true? yeah. yeah. I, I didn't really have the hour. Yeah. You know, it all, so much of it now is, do you have your Edinburgh hour? And I went, I got hours and hours of funny stuff. Is there supposed to be, a, well, it needs to be fluid. Okay, it'll be fluid. <laughs> like, I didn't even think about it. I just thought, I'm going to go, but I'll be funny for an hour. And yeah. I changed it around a lot. And I was trying to add a lot of new stuff. And uh, uh, my uh, promoter, Marlena Zwickler, you probably know Marlena. Yeah. She was adamant. She said, can you just, like, get a show that works and <laughs> stop fucking around? I, I tried to recreate the, um, the uh, um, Scott Monument out of uh, cornflakes and Raisin Bran. <laughs> <laughs> all right i had this great idea <laughs> i had this great idea one morning and what it was was i'm going to build the scott memorial out of all cornflakes boxes because i went down to morrison's and they were like selling old cornflakes for like 20p a box <laughs> and he went fuck this is amazing like i could buy 200 boxes of cornflakes this is fantastic and i did i <laughs> took me like four trips to get them all back to the flat and I reconstructed the Scott Monument, but in the middle was one raisin bran. Like, everything was cornflakes, but one raisin bran. Yeah. And uh, for some reason, I thought this was going to be hilarious. I just thought <laughs> everybody can see it. I built it. It took me like an hour before the show. I'd have to, like, build it and, and get it all the way up to the ceiling. I was in a huge room at the University of Edinburgh. And uh, it was patently obvious that there was one raisin bran that was kind of at the bottom, that if you pulled that out, the whole thing would collapse, right? The tower, like, just picture a tower going all the way up there, but you pull that one box out, and it all just falls all around me. I just thought, well, this is going to be great. All I have to do is ask someone, fellow, would you like some cereal? And give them a bowl and some milk and say, uh, 
what kind of cereal would you like? <laughs> and I just, I, I just misread the nature of Brits because I just figured these people are so evil. Of course, they're going to go the Raisin Bran just so they can watch the whole thing collapse. Yeah. That's fucking hilarious. And I built it the first night and I went, all right, fellow, which kind of cereal would you want? And he went, eh, cornflakes. <laughs> and I went, Oh, no, you sure you want? Yeah, I like. I don't. I don't like raisin. You don't want raisin. I don't like raisin bran. <laughs> Just, anyway, you don't like. And then I started trying. Can you not see what I'm trying to do here, fella? <laughs> I've spent hours building this thing. You are supposed to say, "I'll have the raisin bran." Then we watch the thing collapse, and it's hilarious. And he went, "I don't like raisin bran. I, I can't digest raisins." And I went, "Oh, for fuck's sake!" And I just went over and just, <laughs> kicked, just kicked the raisin around. The whole thing collapsed. And at that point, people were going, what the fuck was that all about? Why did he just, just destroy his own tower? It was... And then, of course, there's another 20 minutes of like, now try... So anyway, I'm just surrounded. Just mountain. Just a mountain of fucking cornflakes everywhere. Yeah. And I'm in the middle of it going, so anyway, uh, hey, uh, yeah, what about that... Uh, <sighs> Bill Clinton, huh? He's like a fucking Gary. People going, what the fuck is he? What was that? What What was that all about? Just, and Marlena, just, she walked up and she went, you can't just buy your act at Morrison's. <laughs> and I went, no, I'm doing it again tomorrow. She, You're not doing it again. And uh, so I took all the cornflakes back. and just li I lived in a flat full of cornflakes. <laughs> so you just did that one time. I mean, nobody else would think of, of doing that. I, don't, I can't imagine anyone thinking of that idea. No, no. no. I just thought it'd be fun. Yeah. Well, you I was so certain of the public. Re I thought I'd read the crowds. <laughs> of course they're going to want the Raisin Bran, because in the thing, nope, I like cornflakes. <laughs> oh, fuck's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you some emergency questions before I'm, I'm going to come back, because it's, it's really it's fascinating to... To hear all this, and I must just say again, the book is fantastic. It's called Nailing It. Uh, there's a lot more in it than we're going to be talking about, but uh, really fantastic stories, unbelievable stories, some of them, but I believe they are true. I will ask you this question. Um, uh, do you think your obituary photo has already been taken, Rich Hall, or do you think it's yet to come? And what do you think your the photo of your, seeing you're an obituary man, oh, what do you think, God. which photo do you think they'll use in your obituary? Um... No, if it's, if it's I, been taken. Nah, I don't think it has. No, no. You think the best is yet to come? Is the, is what you're saying really? There. No, so. no. I think they'll they'll just go pull something off Google when they <laughs> kick <laughs> the bucket. Instagram. It probably won't even be me. <laughs> <laughs> That's got to be embarrassing, right? They stick yeah. the wrong picture in your obituary photo. Yeah. You know, or even worse, Moses. Like they could put that in there. They could put that in there in a second. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I guess they or will. They're gonna be me and then Mo. Yeah. Uh, oh so what? God. What is this? How, how did how did it end? How did Mo from The Simpsons end up with your face? I uh, okay. I'm not even exactly sure. Uh, <laughs> I worked with uh, with Harry Shearer on Saturday Night Live, and yeah. he used to do a great impression of me. Right. But he could do impressions of a lot of people, and he would come around and he would do an impression of me. Uh, uh, I also worked with. Um, uh, a couple other writers who went on to um, write a lot of Simpsons. But Harry doesn't do the Moses like voice. It was, right. is, is it Hank Azaria? Is yeah, it, I think it is. Yeah. 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 Um, I think that Harry Shearer 
just went, why don't you make it sound like Rich Hall? <laughs> and uh, she went, yeah, I could do Rich Hall, because Hank Azaria can do anybody, right? And uh, so they just kind of ended up going, just make it sound like Rich Hall. <laughs> you know, kind of Rich Hall. And somehow that, I also think there might be some physical resemblance. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Uh, a couple Halloweens ago, I went out as Mo with my kid, <laughs> and uh, it was pretty impressive. I, I, it was pretty good. Yeah. My kid painted me yellow, and uh, <laughs> I, I had a tray and the, the, the apron, and I walked around with the, the, the beer, you know. Yeah. And, uh, it, yeah. I mean, it's a weird, because those cartoons will be shown, I think they'll probably still be going in 50 years' time, maybe, you know. Yeah. That that, whatever, you know, probably beyond the time that, Anyone's going to remember Rich Hall or anything Rich yeah. Hall did? Yes. 50, 100 years' time? I'm not, I'm not I know. I'm, you know, hopefully some people And again, uh, if I cared about money, I'd be demanding a shitload of royalties <laughs> yeah. for, for image likeness, but I, I, I don't care. I'm honored. <laughs> I, only because Moe's pretty fucking funny. Yeah. You know? He's, he makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> He's also based actually on Red's Bar, which was the, a tavern in New J- Jersey. All that... Um, that old joke, uh, Red would get these calls from people oh, going, right. you know, yeah. going, hey, hey, I'm looking for Amanda. <laughs> Who? Amanda. Amanda, hug me. <laughs> and he fell for it. These tapes exist. Right. The radio, the, yeah, you can find them. And he'd fall for it every time, Red. Yeah. Go, I'm looking for Amanda. Hug me. Oh, you son of a bitch. <laughs> I'll kill you. I'll rip your liver out. That, that, it's kind of a, a combination of those two things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. There's Ben Moore, who's a fantastic uh, English sort of performance comedian actor, but the film Arthur Christmas, which you're actually also in as a yeah. voice, yeah, uh, is based on him as a. They, they took a photo of him as a young man and mate, and Arthur Christmas is him as a young man. Really? But yeah, but he never got uh, paid. I mean, I keep on saying to him, you should. They, they should have paid you for that because yeah. they've taken your image and they've used you. But I think, again, he sees it as being just a nice thing to happen. Yeah. But yeah. that's an odd... I mean, that's going to be a big... You know, that's a big thing, people taking people's image and doing other things with it. It's going to... You know, probably this might not happen to you, Rich, but they can, they can put you in porn films and things I know, now. I know. So they, someone could take that image and put you in a, in a porn film against your will. So that's a big question, isn't it? Ethical you, question. You mean now in yeah. my current... Yeah, they could take... That's scary. Uh, a younger Rich Hall, I wouldn't mind seeing, yeah. Yeah. They could sort of image me in a younger... I, yeah. could, I, could, I could enjoy that vicariously. Yeah. Well, that might be... You know, that might all be part of it. Yeah, both of us. I, 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 I want to see myself in a porn film 30 years ago. Fuck yeah. Like, wow. Oh, God, my feet. Well, you know what? My feet would be dirty. Remember early porn? They yeah. fucking didn't wash their feet. That was... That really ruined it for me. Like, I... There's a lot of dirty feet in the early days of yeah. porn. And you just go, oh, man, I'm, this, you know, I'm trying to follow the plot. But fucking... <laughs> like... <laughs> um, let's greet... Oh, man, there's... I mean, you know, I knew there would be... I knew we wouldn't get through anything. There's... there's, there's oh, yeah, shut up. Uh, there's, there's so much to talk about. But let's quickly talk about uh, Oates Lee Crenshaw. Ah. Um, which... Um, how did that that came about through like a, a chat show or something in Australia, right? Or was it, or it did, was, yeah, 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 yeah. Linda Gibson. Um, uh, I I I just kind of channeled uh, a lot of pe- of relatives from the, the my backwoods relatives. I like to call them. Right. I've got some 
I've got, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a southerner. I'm a southerner. I've got some people in my family tree that are, wow. And uh, they'd show up at Christmas. And, and uh, so I just kind of created this amalgam character of uh, of those kind of several of my cousins. I don't even know they're cousins. Yeah. I have people show up going, I'm one of your cousins. And I, mean, I don't think you are, but, you know, I'll take your word for it. And uh, and I I wanted to do musical comedy, which I think, I never thought about it in America, but when I got over here and I saw Bill Bailey and, and, and people like that, I thought, well, that's how you do musical comedy. Yeah. Because America, it was like, uh, just a guy coming out with a guitar and playing eight minutes of American Pie with, you know, he changed the lyrics. Changed the lyrics, yeah. Like, I, I remember seeing a guy play, literally, do a filthy version of American Pie that was actually longer <laughs> than American Pie. Like, you actually made this longer? <laughs> <laughs> and it was kind of a, you were kind of stigmatized, I think, if you were a musical comedian. That that's changed a lot because um, there are some great yeah. American musical comedians. But back then, it was just not. Well, it's difficult. I think it's a very difficult thing to get around. The people who do it right, uh, I think, you know, are, it's sort of sublime. It's, it's actually my favorite kind of music is yeah. brilliant comedy yeah. that combine comedy and music brilliantly. So you know, it's very difficult. Very rare that people can do both, right? Because it's yeah. two very different skills, really. Yeah. Uh, and Bill's great. Um, Tim Minchin's a fantastic. Yeah. Artist. Well, yeah, I saw Bill, who was so classically trained and so, like, almost blasphemous about some of the stuff he does, like he, what he does with classical music. But it's obvious he had every, <clears throat> he had a tremendous musical background. And I looked at that and went, God, that looks like fun. I like to do that. The only difference was I had no. <laughs> musical trading none like i never even picked up a guitar or anything right. but i thought i want to write songs and uh i thought okay the best way to do this is how about create a character who's actually just not a very good musician but thinks he is <laughs> and can't understand why no one's no one in nashville is recording his songs <laughs> even though he spent most of his time in prison and most of the songs are about prison rape or or <laughs> trying to communicate through glass with you know yeah. so uh <laughs> and it was another kind of late night at, you know in edinburgh back uh when, when i was first doing it it's like you do your regular show and then uh we'll give you a room late at night go just do something crazy and you would yeah. you know and so it kind of came out of that i just started teaching myself piano surrounded myself with some really good musicians uh had lots of guests on some of who were just unbelievable jerks and, uh, <laughs> but I still got to meet him. Yeah. But uh, and then out of that, I slowly just got yeah. somewhat better. I mean, there's a great story in the book about uh, in Australia. Oh yeah. About uh, a couple of people coming to us who believing Otis to be yeah. real. Right. There were people who thought I was. It was. It's, it's kind of the Al Murray, the Al Murray thing. Yeah. Uh, I think he gets a certain amount of people who still don't know that it's a character. Right. You know. Probably less and less, but I guarantee you there's still people who go, like, oh, man, that guy's right on the money. He says it the way it is. Goes, no, it's a character. And uh, Otis Lee Grinshaw was like that. A lot of people just thought, hey, man, they'd see me on the street. And I, I didn't even look like Otis on the street. They'd go, Otis, why, where's your bandana, man? I had a uh, Confederate bandana. I, I think there's a lot of – I'm not sure that I could even do Otis anymore. No. 
And it, be, did it, it became t- too, too much. And was it partly because you, you ended up doing, going to a funeral and playing a funeral? Yeah, yeah. This couple in Australia showed up and said uh, the granddad had just uh, either killed himself or accidentally driven off of a six-story car park. Okay. Reversed. <laughs> Couldn't get to the bottom of it. Didn't matter. Uh, one or the other. Like the brother, it was a brother and sister, and the brother thought he'd topped himself, and the sister was pretty sure he just hit the wrong gear. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they said they, they came to see my show in Sydney, in Adelaide, and uh, said, uh, our granddad, my grand, you are our granddad's favorite comedian, you and Kevin Bloody Wilson. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, he would have, uh, you, need, you, you need to come to his funeral. <laughs> I, I, and the conversation went on like that. And then the girl started singing a song that I'd written. She knew it, and she had a great voice. And it just kind of, it reached this point where it was too late to go, I'm not really. <laughs> they were too immersed yeah. in thinking I was Otis that I'd reached this point where I don't, oh, I'll just go with this. <laughs> and um, yeah, so the next day I went to their funeral as Otis Lee Crenshaw. I was also kind of like struggling for ideas. I just thought, well, this could be interesting. <laughs> I'll go to a funeral as Otis Lee Crenshaw and uh, just see what happens. And uh uh, I ended up literally writing a song. I had I was there for about four hours, and I just offered to write a eulogy for. And I ended up writing a song about Bundaberg rum, yeah, which everyone was smashed on. Hard, <laughs> unbelievable! Like, I don't know if you, anybody knows about Bundaberg, but it's or, or it's like Buckfast, but right. even with but with jet fuel. Right? <laughs> it was. It's just vicious, and it's yeah. a real kind of redneck bogan. Australians have about nine different words for redneck. So, yeah. so I was in my element. Right? Yeah. I was like, oh, right. Uh, hoon, Bogans, Bevins. So, um, yeah, I ended up writing this song about uh, Bundaberg rum, which was like an anthem for Bundaberg rum. And uh, then I did it on the gala on, on, on TV in Australia. And then all of a sudden I had two different factions of people coming to see me. I had people, like you know, the sublime audience like this, and this other group of people who were just, it was Snicklets all over again. It was like, sing the Bundaberg song. We love Bundaberg rum. And they were in the back starting fist fights because the fucking bar didn't sell Bundaberg rum. We, we lit, shittiest, one of the shittiest gigs I ever played was the Sydney Opera House. I know. I, it was unbelievable. It was awful. It was, there were fights. It smelled like vomit. It was the, one of the, I'm, I'm standing outside. I'm playing the Sydney Opera House, and it just turned into a, it turned into a fist fight. Yeah, it was. I remember Jason Byrne was on. He was on before me, right. and uh, no, he was on after me. And uh, he came to the dressing room. What the fuck? The place smells like vomit. And I, went, I know it's Bundaberg rum. They're sneaking it in, and, and I don't. I don't know what happened. And he said, "Oh, for God's sake, is it? The, did you sing that Bundaberg?" <laughs> And, yeah, I don't know. What happened? I'm getting this audience who thinks it's an anthem. Like the lyrics of the song were about how vicious, what it, how much it fucks you up. Yeah, they didn't care. They loved that. They yeah. loved it. Makes it, you want to call the bouncer a big fat poof. They loved that line. <laughs> want to peel you from the roof. Makes you go on the call about. And uh, when I got back to London, I just thought. Uh, I think Otis is done. That yeah. was kind of the nail in the coffin. For yeah, it's interesting. Like, it's really interesting, but it's also interesting because I don't think, you know, you're the kind of person who go, you know, that's, it really comes across in this book. Something will be proposed 
and you'll go. Where most yeah. people will go, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm yeah. not coming to a funeral dressed yeah. as though it's Lee Crenshaw. Yeah. You I... go with it and then it leads it leads places and they can be disastrous and it can be you know, but that but both of those Sniglets and that it's really fascinating to get something that is a success, but then becomes this terrible then, kind of cross to bear as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, such a, a, a weird... I, I don't know if it's my fault or it's just <laughs> or it's just kismet, you know? It's just like, well, that happened and that's, I'm not doing that anymore. But then to be able to dump it as well, but also to yeah. be to have so many ideas, which you do, and you're, you're really... I mean, you know, using the word comedy genius is overused, but just your your genius is to come up with all this stuff and while you're saying that, there's a bug flying around my head. See there? There's an insect looking for a place to land on my head while you're calling me a genius. It's just, it's just... You're a genius. You're a good landing place for insects. You've got everything yeah. going on for you. Um, and, but, you know, it is. It, you can dump. You can go, right, I'm going to leave the country. I'm going to leave Australia and never do that character again. I'm going to leave America and not do Sniglets again. But you've got enough stuff that it doesn't matter. So for some people, it would be that would be a lifetime of, oh, yeah. God, I've got to go out and do this song for people who are puking up in each other's faces. <laughs> but, you know, it's sort of... it's Because it, it's also beautiful that you created that song for a funeral and it worked in the funeral. So, it, you know, it, it's you're not in control, are you, as the creator of, of where something goes? No, but I think... I mean, I'm only realising this now, that, that in both of those instances, you give up something and then it opens you up creatively to, to new possibilities. Yeah. You know, if I... I could have milked Sniglets and, and been the, you know, I could still be doing them. Yeah. But I want, and then that brought me to Edinburgh and then that brought me to this, an audience here, and I prefer doing comedy in Britain to America. I like doing comedy in America, but it's better here. It's more of an art. I wouldn't, look, look, this is a theater. <laughs> this isn't Uncle Fucker's Chuckle Hutch. <laughs> hey, how you doing? How you doing, Cleveland? And so you're now touring you, on your tours now. So there's a, you, you're doing stand up, and then you do you do a second half that's sort of music. Yeah, the second half is very imp- impro- improvisational music, which um, personally I think is is better than Otis. Uh, yeah. It's just because it's more wide open, and and it's also there's a lot of uh, thinking on my feet, which is great. Yeah, I have a, a really good musicians to back me when I suck. You know. <laughs> I can hit a bum note, and it doesn't matter. It's comedy, you know. So I don't, I don't have to worry about it too much. Yeah. I do worry about it. I, I do dread. I mean, I want to be a better guitarist all the time. Uh, so I work at it a lot, but I'm not ever going to. And my, my real guitarist is over here just, where the fuck did he do that, you know? But so. then you've still like learned the guitar from uh, you know as an adult as yeah. a, you know as w- halfway through your life you've started yeah. I'm going to start doing this. Yeah, and so I'll tell you what: if there's any guitarist, then that never, there's never a point where you cannot be better. Yeah, I've reached the point where I'm never going to be a better comedian than I was in the past. But, uh, <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, musically you can always. There's always something else you can improve on. Yeah. I think that's true of comedy as well. I think I'm probably, I think about four, I'm about four years away from peaking. (laughs) (laughs) I think 2026 is my year. Yeah. I think that's good. I think there's always, I think it's, you know, it's in anything creative thing is interesting. And I think your career is, is so fascinating because there's so much success in there. And you are, you know, you are without doubt one of the most successful comedians in the world. And yet you're very modest about that, and you. St- I think you would still feel 
from what I've heard and read, I, I, I don't think you would describe yourself as that necessarily. So there's always, but, but then that's a good th- that's a good thing to be because you're always striving to improve, you know, and to, yeah. to get better. And and it doesn't feel to me like you're you're not a comedian who coasts and you're not a comedian who's running out of ideas either. So no, no, no. But if you ask my wife, she would tell you I'm a massive failure. <laughs> she, um, she's the one who told me there's a one-eyed Boston Terrier in our neighborhood named Lucky Pierre <laughs> who, uh, who's got like 80,000 Twitter followers. <laughs> <laughs> like, why would you... How am I supposed to respond to that? What? Uh, so I, I should just get a how I should build up my Twitter account. How? That's a dog. He's a one-eyed Boston Terrier. He's cute. I guess he's funny. Maybe he does tricks. I don't. Why would you throw that? That's your measure of success. There's a one-eyed Boston Terrier who's he's not fucking living in a mansion, is he? He's still shitting in the backyard and eating dog food. So how much of a success is he? But to her, it's like. You don't have 80,000 Twitter followers. I don't have any Twitter followers. I, <laughs> I can't manage. I don't. Uh, Twitter's I, dead anyway, Rich. You, yeah, you, you yeah. made the right choice. Twitter's, Twitter's gone. Um, yeah. So how do you, what do you feel about you? How would you describe your, yourself? How do you feel? Do you, feel, you seem quite a content yeah. person. Yeah. Uh, which is so you, you're not like the, some comedians have this driving ambition oh, well. to be the best comedian, to keep on pushing and the. Uh, uh, envious of other comedians and you know always looking over their shoulder or or looking over the shoulder of the person ahead of them. Yeah, that doesn't feel like you, like that would, you. But, well, that's just uh, the nature of their um, personality and drive yeah. and ambition. And if they were preacher, you know, I always think, I always look at uh, evangel at like you know vicars and preachers and priests and and think we're kind of in the same business, right? In a way, we yeah. come out and we just talk and, and people gather around and we, you know, they, of course, have a spiritual message and we're just making people laugh. But I always think they must be way more competitive than, <laughs> you know, they're going home going, oh, fuck it, look at that fucking, that guy sucks. You know, <laughs> that guy over at First Baptist Houston, he sucks. It's awful. It's <laughs> terrible. How does he, how does he get a congregation? He's terrible. Doesn't even know his biblical verses he gets them backwards i'll bet they're like that you know (laughs) yeah and i don't i think you would be if your nature is to be competitive it doesn't matter what you're doing be a truck driver and go i gotta be a better truck driver you know i can't believe joe over there is fucking getting (laughs) that gig you know um or you can be someone who's just like i'm this is the luckiest career choice in the world (laughs) like what we just well, here's what you do, all right? Uh, you can sleep as late as you want, and then you can get up, and then you write some funny shit, or don't. <laughs> doesn't matter. Uh, probably should, but you don't have to. No one's putting a gun to your head. And then you'll go out at night, and you'll stand on the stage, and you'll talk, and people will laugh at you, and then you go backstage, and they, they hand you money. <laughs> like, Really? Yeah, that's a career choice. You can do that. Uh, all right. <laughs> like, that's pretty much good enough, you know. Yeah. If I can keep doing that. Yeah. That's all it is. It's just making drunks laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're entertaining and, drunks. And fight each other and be sick. Um, There's a line in the book uh, toward the beginning that, that a, a musician uh, quoted uh, named Ray Wiley Hubbard, and it's the best 
description of show business. He said, there's two kinds of people. There's daytime people and there's nighttime people. And it's the nighttime people's job to get the daytime people's money. <laughs> yeah. That's good. And, and, and towards the end of the book, you talk about how comedians now don't have... You know, the, I think, again, when, certainly when you started and when I started as well, to an extent, comedians were this sort of... It was like this wasn't a career choice. This was just something you were doing for fun. Yeah. The, the comedians seemed like they were rebel. You call them rebels, renegades, and self saboteurs. And yeah. you don't think those, apart from you mentioned Doug Stanhope as a possible exception, but right. you know, there's not people like um, uh, Bill Hicks and Sam Kinison I, coming through. I, I, I you know, I, uh, I don't know of them. I, I'm just saying that of, of, of the comedians that I have seen, there aren't, it doesn't, I think those days where your lifestyle fueled your comedy are. Uh, there's not that many comedians anymore. I mean, they don't, most of them self-destruct anyway because it's their nature to self-destruct. That's also what makes them incredibly uh, funny or, or um, you know, you just go, whoa. I mean, Sam, I don't know if people here are familiar with Sam Kinison, but that was, he was he was rock and roll comedy. He, he invented, he took comedy and turned it into, into rock and roll, yeah. you know. And traveled with an entourage, all this stuff. And then he'd come out on stage and he'd be electrified. But I would look at him and think, if that's what it takes to be that funny. I, <laughs> I'll be marginally funny because I couldn't live like that. And he didn't live like that. He, no. he, he, uh, Bill Hicks didn't well, quit drinking, quit smoking, and then got pancreatic cancer. So, uh, But their life, I mean, their comedy, was they were just really dark crazy, visceral people who just went to places, did things to their brain and their bodies and their lifestyle that informed their comedy. And they were mesmerizing, but I don't blame, I wouldn't suggest that kind of lifestyle to anyone because <laughs> you're going to die, yeah. you know, or burn out. And so it's probably a safer, you know, comedy now is like, I, you know, I, I bemoan the the fact that there aren't people like that, but I still don't recommend it. You know, no. I mean, it's, but it is interesting. I mean, I don't know if there could ever be another Rich Hall, though. You know, I mean, and you're not you're not a self destructive comedian, uh, but you're <laughs> particularly not con- yeah. comparatively to. Most oh, he came on stage with a beer. He, <laughs> he drank the whole thing. Back in off, Caligula. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, you know, I can't. I mean, I don't think. I don't think there ever was anyone else like you. Anyway, it, 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 there's, there's something. Your brain works in a different in a different way, which is which. Well, I suppose comedians need to have that, and it'll be a diff, another comedian that will work in a different way to Rich Hall. Yeah, I don't think yeah. there'll be another. Rich but your brain works different. That's why you're a comedian. That's why you're yeah. still. You know, I think you have to figure out. Well, how can I? Uh, you, you do find your voice at a certain point. Yeah. It takes a long time. Everybody starts out emulating somebody else. You know, yeah. I, I rip, basically ripped off a preacher. I mean, yeah. uh, not even a comedian. I just ripped off a preacher's and just made it funny. But then you eventually do find your voice. And once you found that, then then you all you have left is the hurdle, the societal hurdles that kind of put up certain roadblocks. Like, well, you don't you? That doesn't work anymore. You can't get away with that. Yeah. So like I said earlier about Otis, I don't think I could get away with it anymore. I'm not sure. I'd have to figure out some way around. How can I come out here and with an, a bandana and he'd have to, I don't know, you know. 
Yeah, you, you'd need to change it, but you know, yeah. but but equally, you know, you the great thing is that you made that decision irrespective. You know, it came to an end yeah. on your terms in any case. Yeah, I've been changing the band. You know, you would have to probably change the bandana because. Yeah. Someone would go. You can't have that flag, even though the yeah. point, you're, even though you're, the point is making is yeah. uh, is on their side. Some people wouldn't get it. Maybe, but but yeah, it's. I mean, yeah. things change. But you have, you have to be able to adapt a little bit as a comedian, you know. Unless unless you are always on. a I level. think you constantly have to adapt. Yeah. I think we, you know, the stuff that you could talk about five years ago is to a, a lot of people is just like, uh-huh. oh, right. It's just you just keep staying ahead of. of of hactum, if that's a word. Is that yeah. a word? Hactum, yeah. Stay ahead of that. Stay ahead of the game. <laughs> well, that's the worst sin, really, isn't it, as a comedian? It's not, it's, it's not being offensive. It's, being, it's, it's not being original. It's, being, yeah. it's, it's doing the obvious. Yeah. Which, again, I think is something you've, you've managed to stay ahead of and, and avoid. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, think so. I mean, I I'll haven't seen that. every single thing you've done, Rich. In there. Oh, no, we, no, we can no. all be hack at some point. No, no. Well, that's that's why I wrote this book because yeah. uh, I have such a sterling, pristine career that I thought people should read about all the <laughs> shitty gigs I did. <laughs> that is worth reading. I didn't want it. The last thing I wanted to do was write another. Hey, here's how I look. What I did here. Look what I I accomplished. This. That's just shoving it in people's faces. Yeah. I'm famous and you're not. Read my book. <laughs> Fuck you. Why would I buy your book? What you want to do is write a book about. Here's some things that really fucked up, and anybody can relate to that. They yeah. can go, oh, you know, and it's way more entertaining. And uh, so that's well, that's I know, what... but also your fuck up. So like Sniglets and people shouting that at you. Was horrible for you at the time, but it's fucking funny to hear about yeah. now that that you were trying to go on stage and do your comedy, yeah. and, and then people wanted something that wouldn't work. It's yeah. brilliant, you know. It's a brilliant story in retrospect. Which again, I suppose most comedians, you go through something terrible, and you kind of know that with a bit of distance, or it's going to be a, yeah. it's going to be funny anyway. So you sort of can't, can't yeah. lose as a comedian. It's nice. It's nice. Um, look, the book's fantastic. Uh, do buy I, I got the audio book which is the best way to get it because you get rich reading it to you which is uh, lovely I've also got the I bought it twice I got the book and the audio book that's the kind of guy I am I'm very, very supportive uh, slowly and on... pushing me up to bestseller <laughs> <laughs> one Richard Herring purchase at a time <laughs> and there's two copies every podcast imagine that uh, but if someone else will buy it now as well and pass it on uh, and you're you're on tour through 2023 as well. The, the new tour, yeah, 2023. Yeah, so yeah. go and see Rich live all over the world, back in America, UK, Australia. Yeah, uh, I think I'm doing Australia. Yeah, but, but uh, I'm doing Parklington. That's where I was born, Rich. I know. Good. Well, you've done your research. And I know that theater. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a great theater. It is lovely theater. Yeah, I went to see somebody else there by accident. I mean, not by accident. I who. <laughs> that's a great theater we'll get you on again because we haven't talked about your documentaries we haven't talked about so much other stuff we could talk about uh but what a fascinating career what a fantastic man what a brilliant stand-up comedian will you please give it up for rich hall ladies and gentlemen you have been listening to rahalastapa with me richard herring and my guest rich hall thank you to scant regard for playing the music for this show i am indebted to my producer ben walker thank you very much to Chris Evans, not that one, uh, and all of his lovely team of merry men uh, today. Uh, thank you very much for the Leicester Square Theatre for having us. Do check out LeicesterSquareTheatre.com. They've got some fantastic shows on here, plus Stuart Lee as well. 
thank you very much to Sky Potato, GoFasterStripe.com and Fuzz, who are all producing this together. Thank you for listening. Please tell your friends to come and listen to another podcast. Thank you. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. RichardHerring.com slash ballback slash tour or RichardHerring.com slash gigs for all of the information on the tour. GoFasterStripe.com for lots of downloads and books and lots of fun. Thanks for listening. Go and listen to another one. Tell your friends about the show. Tell your friends about the tour. I love you all. I'm out.